0: Monday or Tuesday, I'm driving home and I'm getting about close to our house. And it's that beautiful spring day at 72 degrees. The humidity's low. There's a gentle breeze. The colors are just outstanding. Michigan has the best spring green, I think, of all the states. And I'm admiring the beauty of Michigan, admiring the beauty of the flowers and the trees. And I thought to myself, I wonder if we could still get a snowstorm. I'm thinking to myself, is it too late to get a snowstorm? And the reason I'm thinking that is because secretly inside, some of you aren't going to like what I say, I really would like one more snowstorm. See, I've been a little disappointed by last winter. See, ever since moving from Florida, I've learned to love winter. I appreciate winter. To me, a good winter is when you get a lot of snow. And last winter was okay, but we didn't have like that crazy snow, blizzard, storm. You know, that kind of storm where you have to go outside and shovel once an hour just to just kind of keep up with it? We never had that. We never had like the extended school closed for three days. I love that. I love that. I love being home and shoveling and just eating food and everything. And I miss that. And part of me was this finding myself going, I don't know if I can fully enjoy summer because I didn't have the winter that I wanted. Now don't get me wrong, I love summer. I think summer's amazing. I love lakes, I love beach, I love cottage. I don't like coming in the sanctuary on Sunday morning, it's 85 degrees and the air conditioning's turned off. So if you're wondering, why do I feel air and the windows open? I'm trying to get it down. It's about 75, much better than 85 when I got here. So I love summer and everything about it, but part of me was like, man. I kind of missed out. Do you know that feeling? It's hard to anticipate the future because there's something in your past that you're just like I just kind of felt like I didn't get what I wanted in the past, so I have a hard time moving into the future. And as I was reading the books of Act the book of Acts preparing for this message today, I thought that is must be how the disciples felt in Acts 1. If you've read through Acts 1, you know the story where Jesus is with his disciples and in acts 1 verse 4 it says once they were eating with them and jesus commanded them don't leave jerusalem until the father sends you the gift he promised as i told you before john baptized with water but just in a few days you'll be baptized with the holy spirit jesus said to his disciples you're going to get a gift just wait here till you get the gift of the holy spirit and how do the disciples respond what do they say Said when the disciples were with Jesus, they kept asking, Lord, has the time come when you free Israel and restore our kingdom? Jesus just said, I'm going to give you a gift, the Holy Spirit. And the disciples are like, "Ah, I don't really want that. When are you going to get rid of the Roman Empire? That's that one thing that we really want. And I think a lot of us know what that's like. God has this invitation, He wants to do something new in our life to give us the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we're like, yeah, but remember back here, I didn't get what I really wanted there. Disciples keep going back the one thing. And how does Jesus respond to them? I think this is so beautiful how Jesus responds. The text already said that the disciples keep asking, when, when are you going to defeat the Roman Empire? And Jesus says to him, He says, God alone has the authority to set those dates and time. They're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling the people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world. See, notice Jesus didn't say to the disciples, stop asking that. He acknowledged their request, and he said, you know what, that's going to happen someday. But you don't have to worry at all about when it's going to happen. Instead, I want you to focus on one thing. The Holy Spirit's going to give you power so that you can be my witnesses. Do you know what Jesus did right there in that sentence? He laid out the mission for the church. He laid out in that one little verse, this is the the mission, that you're going to be my witness. See, the witness, that's a legal term. That's a term that was used in a courtroom. See, a, a, a witness testifies about what they have seen. A witness's job isn't to do anything. They strictly tell people what they have seen, what they've experienced. And that's the mission that Jesus is laying out to the disciples saying, your mission is to be my witness. The mission isn't to destroy the Roman Empire, so yet. That's going to happen. See, if the Romans needed to be removed so you could be a better witness, that's going to happen. If you need a snowstorm to be a better witness, that snowstorm's going to happen. It might take some prayer, it might take some intercession. But what Jesus is saying to his disciples these things that you think are obstacles are not obstacles because you're going to have the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, What you really need is the Holy Spirit. You don't need your opposition removed. But see, the disciples are in that mindset, oh yeah, the opposition has to be removed for me to do what I really want to do. And Jesus is confronting that and saying, no, don't worry about these obstacles because you have the Holy Spirit. And right after that, Jesus says it to him. We get Acts 1.9 says, after saying this, Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they are watching and they could no longer see them, him, him. Now that must have been a very unusual day. Here it starts out And Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit. The disciples are like, no, we don't want that yet. And then suddenly Jesus tells them, you're going to be my witness. And next thing you know it, Jesus leaves. And on one hand, the disciples are watching Jesus. And the next, I bet they're all wondering, what are we going to do now? That's it. But see, Jesus knew that all that they needed was his Holy Spirit to do what God had called them to do. Jesus leaves with this simple instruction, wait for the Holy Spirit. And I think it's important that we stop and pause and remember that the mission came first. And then in Acts chapter 2, you see the birth of the church. The mission came, and then the church came. Sometimes we think the mission of the church is just to kind of make us all happy to answer all of our prayer requests. But the mission came first. The call to be a witness came first. I love how J.D. Greer says that. He says it this way. He says, God doesn't have a mission for the church. God does not have a mission for the church. Instead, God made the church for his vision. God made the church to fulfill his mission. And that's just pretty simple, what the mission is, that we would simply be his witnesses. We would just tell what we've seen. We would tell what we have experienced. But we have to fight against that impulse that says, no, but I want this one thing over here. See, the mission of the church isn't to answer all of our prayer requests in our timing. Instead, the mission of the church is to make us all effective witnesses. So today's Pentecost Sunday. Today's the day that we celebrate that the Holy Spirit came and birthed the church in Acts chapter 2. We remember that the church was created for a mission to be a witness. In Acts 2, verse 1 through 4, it says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them the ability. In, chapter, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit is here. And the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And I think sometimes you wonder, why Pentecost? I mean, why did the Holy Spirit come on maybe Monday or Tuesday? But the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. I think it's important for us to unpack the significance of the Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost. Now, Pentecost Sunday is a Greek word, and Pentecost simply means 50 it means 50 days after Passover, but if you look at the Hebrew, they would not have used the word Pentecost. They would have called it by the Hebrew Old Testament feast called Shavuot. That's an Old Testament feast. You might remember we talked about the feast before in the Old Testament. All the Jewish people would celebrate seven feasts. There's three in the spring and three in the fall, and the feast of Pentecost is the last feast of the spring. And that's the day God decided to pour out his Holy Spirit on the church. And he kind of wonder why. Why pick that day? What is so significant about Pentecost that you would have it be the day of the birthing the church? I think there's several different reasons why God picked Pentecost Sunday, but I'm going to talk about four of them. Four reasons why I think it's significant that Acts 2 happened on Pentecost Sunday. See, all the feasts revolved around one main theme, and that's Thanksgiving. Every single feast of the Old Testament was a time to set aside time to say, we're going to thank God for what He has done. We're going to thank God for the provision that He's given us. We're going to thank God for the crops that He's given us. I think we would all agree that as Christians, one of our callings is to become experts at being thankful, to become experts at gratitude. And one of the reasons we become experts at gratitude is because we live in a world structure that is constantly telling us, you don't have something. We live in a world that we are constantly being marketed to day and night saying, you're lacking something. And if you have this one additional thing, then you could be happy or then you could be satisfied. And the reason that is so important for us to be thankful is because it reminds us that we have exactly what we need. It reminds us that God takes care of us. It reminds us that God gives us the provision. And when we become grateful, it's easier to resist that impulse of, I lack something, I'm missing something. See, once we start showing gratitude, it's just a great reminder that Jesus gives us everything we need. So not only was Pentecost and not only were the feasts all about thankfulness, but it was also a time of great expectations, See, when God would instruct the Israelites to get together for these feasts, it was a time to be thankful. But out of thankfulness and out of gratitude, it builds expectation. Because when you look at what God has done in your life, you start being grateful for what he's done in the past. You start saying, if God has taken care of me that well for the last 54 years, there's nothing that's going to stop him now. And it builds expectation that God is just going to continue to provide and he's going to continue to take care of me. And also part of the Old Testament feast, the Old Testament feast of, of Shavat or, or Pentecost, they would also have read the prophecy of Joel in Joel 2. Many of you are familiar with that prophecy where the, the, the text says in that time I'll pour out my Holy Spirit. And so the Israelites would gather together on Pentecost and they would anticipate that someday God would pour out his Holy Spirit and they would wonder, is today going to be the day? Maybe today would be the day. So there was that anticipation there. Some of the Old Testament experts say that the feast and the Old Testament were bigger celebrations than what our Christmas is even like. People wanted to be part of these Old Testament feasts because they wanted to be grateful. They wanted to show thanksgiving. They're grateful that God had given them the law, but they also had great expectations of what God would do in the future. And the third thing that these Old Testament feasts did was they created dependence on God. They reminded the people how much they needed God in their lives. I think because we don't live in an agricultural society like the Old Testament did, I think sometimes we miss the significance of being dependent on God for your food. I mean, in that Old Testament structure, if your crops didn't grow, you were out of food. You would have a famine. I think we're like, hey, if we run out of food in Michigan, we'll get it from Ohio or we'll import it from across the ocean. We don't worry about food production as much because we live in this global economy. But imagine 3,000 years ago. If you didn't have rain for your crops, that can mean you could die. So at the end of the year, when it was time to celebrate harvest, you were incredibly grateful because you knew the reason you had food on your table was because God had provided and there was no other explanation for it. So part of this whole celebration was this huge gratefulness. Knowing that God, if you don't provide, if you don't take care of me, nothing is going to, nothing else will. So you're probably thinking, okay, all these feasts, they all kind of sound the same. They do. Many of them have a lot of overlapping in the significance. But this is where Pentecost is very different from the other ones. On Pentecost Sunday, they would go through the celebration, they would bring their offerings to the temple, they would bring their, 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 their first fruits to the temple, But then after the big uh, service and ceremony, then they would have a huge feast together. They'd all eat together. and they would invite everybody to the feast. They would invite the poor, they would invite people that couldn't provide for themselves, and they would come together for this big feast. And this is where Pentecost is different from the other feast. the first three feasts are all about what God has done for you. And then the fourth feast of of the spring comes in. And this feast is all about what God will do to others through you. Suddenly for three feasts you celebrate and thank God for what he has done for you. And now in the feast of Pentecost you celebrate what God is going to do to others through you. And suddenly this meaning of Pentecost goes beyond Thanksgiving and it goes to taking care of the poor. It goes to taking care of the, less, the people that are insignificant or the people that are marginalized and are broken. And when you get to the New Testament, Jesus opens up the definition of the poor and he includes people that are poor in spirit people that don't know Jesus, people that experience spiritual bankruptcy, that they're far from God, that they're far from a relationship with him. And so part of our Pentecost is this reminder to take care of the poor physically and spiritually and emotionally as well. And this whole whole culture of taking care of the poor is woven into these feasts. I like how in Leviticus 23, it says, When you shall reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your fields right up to its edges, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. See, part of the Old Testament culture, when you had a big crop, you would leave the edges for the poor people that they could come and get the food they needed or they could come and get some food that was left in your crops. The whole Jewish culture was you take care of the poor. Continue, we have it in these scriptures all about taking care of the poor. There's a significant chapter Matthew 6, talks about taking care of the poor. And actually, I read this in our first Pentecost service we did three or four years ago. And I want to go back to that because I think it's such an important scripture in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 6 verse 19, it says, do not lay for Do not lay for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in your in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. I think sometimes you read the scripture in Matthew and you're like, I don't, I don't get that at all. It seems like you're missing a little chunk of scripture. You're kind of wondering, did I cut and paste wrong? Because at one moment you have like, talking about laying up treasures in heaven, and then you got the eye of the body and the darkness. What does it all mean? How does it all flow together? One of the Jewish cultural scholars is Ray Vanderlaan. He's actually from this Grand Rapids area. And he said there's this phrase in the Old Testament, in the old Jewish Old Testament culture. And the phrase or the slang language was, your eyes are good. In the Hebrew culture in the Old Testament, if somebody took care of the poor really well, they would say to that person, your eyes are good. Or if you're a person and you're continue to contribute to the poor and the less fortunate in the Old Testament, they would refer to you as a person that had good eyes. Now, why would they say that? What's the significance of that? See, there's this connection to your eyes are good to Isaiah 58. Listen to Isaiah 58. It says, feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon." See, we know from the Bible that, so what the Scripture is saying is that your eyes will be like lamps for other people. See, we know from the Bible that the Word of God is a lamp that leads and guides and directs people, but what about people that don't know Christ? What about people that never read the Bible? What about people that never pray? What is the light for them? See, and the scripture is saying that by the activities you do, by the actual behavior you do, that your eyes will attract people to either follow Jesus or not. The scripture is talking about your attitude and how you treat other people will determine if people are going to follow Jesus. It's like talking about, are you going to be an example? And that's where the significance is of the Old Testament culture of, are your eyes good? Are your eyes good that people that don't know Jesus could look at you and say, I want to follow that person. That person's intriguing to me. So in the whole Jewish culture, this whole idea of taking care of the poor, taking care of the marginalized, taking of the broken, is totally woven into the culture. And it's on that day that the Holy Spirit breaks through. It's on that day the Holy Spirit breaks through and says, now you're going to actually have more power to do what I've called you to do. And so one of the immediate consequences of the power of the Holy Spirit coming down is boldness. We see example after example of the disciples preaching with extra boldness and extra confidence. We see Peter, who seven weeks earlier was denied Christ three times. Suddenly he's getting up and he's preaching beautiful sermons. And so you see after the power of the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, you see evangelism happening you see miracles happening, you're seeing the churches growing, you're seeing all these wonderful things that are happening because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the fourth thing thing that you see is you see opposition. The very thing that the disciples were trying to avoid in Acts chapter 1, now they are experiencing it even in a greater way. So the question is, how are these disciples who in Acts 1 were saying, can't you get rid of the Roman Empire? How are they going to deal with this extra opposition that's coming their way? You, if you've read Acts, you know that in Acts chapter 3 is this beautiful story about how Peter and John prayed for this man who was, in, who was not able to walk for 40 years. And they pray for this man and he's healed. And you think everybody would be celebrating and say, wow, isn't Jesus wonderful? But What happens? Peter and John get arrested and thrown into jail. And then they get let out of jail. And this is where I'm going to pick up the scripture from Acts 4, verse 23 through 31. I want us to see how differently Peter and John respond to opposition in chapter 4 than they did chapter 1. So it says, as soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the reports all the believers lifted up their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of the heavens and earth, the seas and everything in them. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David and your servant saying, "Where were th- why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battles, the rulers gather together against the Lord and against the Messiah." In fact, This has happened here in this very city for Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, and governor of the Gentiles and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Here, these disciples are smart guys. They know exactly what is going to happen if they continue to preach the gospel. You kind of would expect it after they got tossed in jail and the disciples all went together and had a follow-up meeting they would have said, "Okay, let's figure out a way to be safe. Maybe Peter and John, you don't go out next week. Maybe you guys just stay home for a week or maybe Peter and John don't go together anymore." Or maybe let's just keep this all hushed for a month or two. Let, let, let's get out of this, this situation we're in. Let's just play it really, really safe that you would expect that's what they would do. But they did the exact opposite. They prayed for more boldness and they prayed for more miracles. They knew exactly what could happen to them. It's such a difference to watch the transformation of Peter and John from chapter 1 when they're just like, God, would you just get rid of the Roman empires? And now what they're saying is that opposition doesn't, buy, uh, that doesn't bother us at all. God, would you just give us more of your power? Would you give us more of your boldness? Would you give us more of your confidence? Would you give us more of your ability to speak to people? reason they kept asking God for boldness is they knew their mission wasn't complete they knew they weren't done being witnesses just because they met opposition so that's why they prayed for more boldness they weren't done They were just starting. But look how they started. They got together and it says the believers came together and they lifted up their voices together. They came together to pray. They came together to pray for boldness. And what did they pray? They said, oh, sovereign God, creator of the heavens and the earth. They started out by saying, God, we acknowledge you as ruler. We acknowledge you as king. We acknowledge you as Lord. We acknowledge that none of this has taken you by surprise. And then they immediately start praying the Old Testament scriptures. See, these disciples, they knew the word of God. They knew their Bible so they could pray with confidence that God is sovereign. They knew that God was going to take care of them, that God would work things together. They weren't taken by surprise and thinking, oh no, what's going to happen now? Is God not aware of what's happening? They had the confidence from knowing their Bible and knowing the promises of God is that God would just continue to act on their behalf. And still, Instead of running away and worrying and fearing, they said, how can we leverage this situation to further the kingdom of God? How can we take advantage of the situation that we are in to be better witnesses? Now, we all would have expected they would have stopped and said, oh, the costs are getting a little too high here. This is getting a little scary. We might actually get killed. They didn't do that. You notice when they prayed, they didn't really elaborate at all about the enemies that were coming against them. They didn't rage against their enemies. They didn't complain. They didn't moan about it. I've complained more about the heat in the building in this room than they complained. They didn't complain. With the three things they prayed, the first thing is they said simply, God, would you consider the threats that were made against them? Hey, Cole, the Martha's uh, catering came out. Can you just tell them put it on that table out there? Oh, now the anticipation, food. What they prayed was they just said, God, would you consider what our enemies are doing? That's it. And then they say, God, would you give us the ability to speak boldly? And God, would you do some more signs and wonders? That's an incredible prayer. They didn't sit there and, yes, God would have listened to their prayers if they would have complained by their enemy. But the disciples knew he would have responded like he did in Acts 1 and say, yep, that will be taken care of in the God's proper timing. But for now you have the Holy Spirit. Nothing is going to prevent you from doing the will of God when you have the Holy Spirit. And that's God's instruction to them. And then what happened? said, after they prayed, the place that they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. There's some more boldly that happens to them. The disciples already had the Spirit of God. They got that a few chapters earlier. Now they get more of the Holy Spirit I love this chapter because it simply reminds us, yes, we all got the Holy Spirit when we received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but it reminds us that there's multiple fillings of the Holy Spirit. It reminds us that we should be like James and John. They spent, or John and Peter, they spent time with Jesus. They had a personal relationship with Jesus. They were there on Pentecost Sunday, and they're still praying that God would give them more of the Holy Spirit to be bold. I think that's just a reminder to us. Every morning, we need to wake up and say, God, would you give me more boldness? Because the mission isn't done yet. We're still called to be a witness each and every day. And Pentecost Sunday is such a reminder that we have the Holy Spirit, but that we can have more of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost Sunday in Acts chapter 4 is a reminder that any obstacle in our life is simply an obstacle. And sometimes if the obstacle isn't moved, we just need to learn how to jump. And if we don't know how to jump, we just go around it. But God said to the the disciples, nothing is going to stop you from being my witness because of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we celebrate That's why we come together as a church and as a community on this day to be thankful for what God has given to us, to remind us to be dependent on God and to live with expectation, but also to remember that one of the ways we show gratitude to God is how do we take care of the people that are spiritually bankrupt, to remind us to be a witness. So today I want to close the service by taking communion together. Hopefully you all got in the sanctuary this this little disposable communion. If you don't, it's in the middle of the room. And if you're watching at home and you're a believer at home and you want to follow communion, you can just grab a, a little juice or maybe just a little piece of a cracker. And We take communion today as a reminder of what God has done for us, to participate in what God has done for us. I love in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. That's what we're going to do today. We're meeting together with sharing of the word, but then we're going to go outside and we're going to have a meal together. And there's food for everybody that's here. Again, if you're home, quick drive here if you want a meal. But we're going to have a meal together. That's what the early church does. all the while praising God, enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. That's how you grow a church. You meet together, you fellowship together, you take the Lord's Supper together, and the Lord sends people that are being saved. So let's celebrate communion today as we remember what Jesus did There's this first little layer you peel off and hopefully you all get out your glasses and you can can get that first little layer off and here's a little gluten-free wafer. We get out this little bread that's just representation of the body of Jesus. That Jesus on the cross, his body was broken for us so that we might be whole. So let's take this together celebrating that we have our wholeness in Jesus' body alone. And then second, we take the lid off and we have the grape juice left, which is symbolic of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. The blood of Jesus that was shed for us so that we could have new life. And we drink this together, thanking Jesus for his death and resurrection, but also taking this and saying thank you for your Holy Spirit and asking God for a fresh infilling of his Holy Spirit that he would give us greater boldness, that he would give us greater confidence. And just put it in that little hole thing in front of the pew in front of you, and then we'll go through later and clean it up. So Father, we come before you today, Lord, on this Pentecost Sunday, and we thank you, God, for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that each person here that's a follower of yours is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And God, I come before you today, God, and we ask, Lord, that you just give us a fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit like you gave the church in Acts 4 so that we would be bolder for you, that we would be more confident for you, that we would leverage every situation in our life as an opportunity to be a witness God, each of us has a story. Each of us has a testimony. God, I pray that you would work in our heart, in our life, to give us the boldness that we need. Lord, we pray for our city. We pray for our church, Lord, that you would give us opportunities. God, we do pray for revival and renewal in the city. Lord, there's so many people in our city who are desperate, so many that are hopeless, so many that are discouraged that they need you. God, I pray that you would use this little body, this little church to be good eyes for the city. Lord, may we have good eyes. God, we love you so much. We're grateful for our time to be here. And God, I even thank you, Lord, this Pentecost. We're celebrating the Holy Spirit. But Lord, we're also celebrating that we can gather together again for a meal. That's big. That's powerful. So we thank you for your provision in Jesus' name.